This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery... Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition, by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Jerry Woodfield worked for the whole Apollo program as an alarm system engineer, seeing the mission through both its triumphs and its defeats. One particularly memorable day for him is the 13th of April, 1970, the day when Apollo 13's oxygen tank ruptured. As we approach the 50th anniversary of the explosion and subsequent rescue, we talked to Jerry about his time at NASA and what it was like to be at Houston on that fateful day. Uh, as a little background, I had uh, a role as the alarm system engineer for the Apollo program for the spacecraft. There was only one person that had that responsibility. I was the one. I was assigned the command module, caution and warning, shortly after I came to work in 1965. And after a few months, because I was working the alarm system for the command module, the mothership, they said, well, the fellow that had had the lunar landers command, he left to get a job with the industry. So they said, well, Jerry's already got the mothership, the command module, so let's assign him the lunar landers alarm system. So I had both. I was the only person at NASA that was responsible for the spacecraft Apollo alarm system. Okay, so in that role, I was an engineer. I was never a astronaut. I wasn't a flight controller, but I was an engineer. So I was the guy that knew how the system worked because I was responsible for its design. Now, the way that Apollo was actually managed and operated and tested and so forth, it took three groups. It took the astronauts, the flight controllers, and then the engineers. Now, at first, the engineers did not have that big a role with regard to actual mission operations. But what happened was that Spacecraft 12, if you go back and look at the history of it, they were actually testing the actual command module that was going to go into orbit. And uh, this was in uh, 1967. I went to uh, Rockwell, North America, make, that made the actual command module as the engineer responsible for its alarm system. So what when they were testing the vehicle, 
the spacecraft 12, that's what it was called. It was going to be Apollo 1. And uh, I was the alarm system engineer. So when they began to test that spacecraft 12 at the manufacturer, all kinds of alarms came on because it was the first of its kind. And any kind of a new project, whether it's an automobile or an aircraft, the very first uh, models that you make are going to show the problems that it might have. Well, because I had the alarm system, when a problem occurred, it, it would ring the alarm. And so there were about two dozen different issues with that spacecraft 12 that I had to deal with. And most of them had nothing to do with a problem with my alarm system. The problem was that it was not being operated in orbit or as it should have been as is, is a spacecraft because you're on a factory floor, you didn't have anything in the tanks. So every time something would happen, they say, oh, it's Jerry's alarm system. Well, it wasn't. But I had to analyze all the systems so to, to prove, you know, I, I, I was like a defense attorney. And I had to say, no, it's not my system. So actually, after all that went, I went through all that. I have a memorandum, and it listed all the things that I had to explain that it wasn't my system, that there were issues with the spacecraft. So I went out to this meeting. It was in July of 1966, and they were going to actually accept this spacecraft 12. It was going to be the spacecraft that would be tested out as the mothership that would eventually uh, be the type of ship that would take astronauts to the moon, the command ship. Well... I got out there, and uh, uh, the, these things came up again, uh, issues that they we've had to deal with and test. And the three original astronauts, Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee, would be at a board meeting, and, I, and I'd have to present the anything that was not right with the alarm system. So I had spent... Uh, it was a two- or three-day meeting, and they had top people with NASA, top people with the manufacturer, North American Rockwell. And uh, I visited with Roger Chaffee. Roger was 31 years old, I guess, and he was a great, bright guy. I enjoyed getting to know him. And he knew a lot about the alarm system. And so I, being the engineer responsible for it, I, we talked about some of the issues that had come up. And he gave me some suggestions, and they were great suggestions. But uh, nevertheless, finally, there was an evening meeting. It would have been in, uh, I guess it was July of 66, where I had to get up there. Everybody had that was responsible as a manager, a project engineer with NASA for their system had to defend the situation with the system. Well, I, I had my presentation ready to go. And so I got up before there was Roger, uh, Chaffee, Ed White, and then Ed, and then uh, Gus Grissom. And they were there and I uh, went through everything. And I said, there's only one issue that I had. And that was with something called the O2 flow. That is when the alarm system monitors all the environmental and the power and all the parameters that are making uh, that spacecraft 12 operate correctly. One of the 
things that I monitored for being a warning or a caution was the flow of oxygen into the atmosphere in in the actual interior of the spacecraft 12. Well, what happened was one of the issues, I always had problems, they were called nuisance alarms. And nuisance alarms are the kind of things that, it'd be example, if you had a home air conditioner and you turned on the air conditioner and the lights in the in your home would kind of get dim because the power just in the turn on time would lower the voltage. Well, that was things I always had to deal with with the alarm system. They called them nuisance alarm. They weren't really problems, but they were a nuisance and they would distract the crew. And uh, you could deal with them by just uh, through an operational procedure, say, ignore that alarm, there's no real problem, or you could actually redesign the hardware to deal with it. Well, if the, the vehicle is going to go to Cape Kennedy, and we didn't have time to redesign everything because the O2 flow thing, uh, if if you move around a lot in the cabin and you'd breathe or, or there was something uh, about the actual system that fed oxygen into the cabin momentarily, it would turn that alarm on. But most of the time, it had nothing to do with any problem. Uh, later on, something as simple as just what they called a urine dump, where you dump urine into the vacuum of space, it would cause that alarm to come on because the oxygen would have to replace that atmosphere that was going out into space. And so I said, look, this this alarm is, is likely we can we can verify it at Cape Kennedy as being our normal routine thing. And so they said, okay, that's fine. So they shipped the spacecraft to Cape Kennedy, and uh, I returned to Houston. And it was in uh, January, I guess it was uh, 27th of 1967, and it was a Friday evening, and they were actually testing Spacecraft 12. And that afternoon, it was a Friday afternoon, that alarm came on recurrently, and it was here again. Uh, most of the time they thought, well, it's just coming on because of the routine things that we'd seen before. And um, finally, uh, about 6.30 that evening, all of a sudden, something had happened with the environmental control system. There was a short circuit in one of the harnesses or the connectors underneath Gus Grissom's couch. And that was a tragic thing that happened because that short circuit, there are all kinds of flammable materials that onboard spacecraft 12, and they were ignited. There was a pure oxygen atmosphere. There was even more than atmospheric pressure. So you know you that's a horrible situation if you've got flammable materials and then you've got a spark and you've got pure oxygen. Well, that, that caused the actual tragedy that killed the Apollo 13. Uh, not the third, spacecraft trail, Apollo 1 crew. And so that was a very tragic thing that happened. And, uh, of course, my concern was why hadn't my alarm system uh, been able to actually save their lives? And as we've reviewed that thing and uh, the guys here found out, no, there's no way that their, my alarm system could have saved them. It, it couldn't have because it was a, such a situation, a short circuit. They didn't have any kind of even on board a, a spacecraft club. They didn't have a fire extinguisher or anything like that. So uh, over the years, 
you know, I've always wondered if I'd maybe done a better job. We've all wondered that, that had anything to do with that. Uh, could what we had done made a difference? And so uh, this resulted in the formation of a group called the Mission Evaluation Room. George Lowe, who at that time was the head of the Apollo program, decided that we needed a group of engineers that actually had been involved with the design, the test, the manufacture, that being like the fathers and mothers that actually took the child, their system, like mine was the alarm system, from its birth through the testing of it and the manufacture of it and the installation. And the, we needed a group called the Mission Evaluation Room that when anything happened during a mission, that here you could go to these guys that would be actually monitoring the mission. like flight, They were engineering kind of like flight controllers, but they were in another uh, room. It was not far from the Mission Operations Control Room the mission evaluation room, and we would be the guys that were actually listening in our headset, monitoring the same uh, the telemetry displays that the astronauts and uh, the, the displays and controls and then that the flight controllers were seeing on their consoles. We were doing the same thing, only as engineers. Okay, so now we have another group. We didn't have that group, uh, you know, until the Apollo 1 fire, and that's when we became very important to the operations of all the missions because we were the backup guys, the guys who were watching over the shoulders of the astronauts in the flight control. And I was the responsible guy in that mission operation room for the alarm system. So anytime an alarm came on, uh, uh, you know, if it, it wasn't obvious what caused it, well, then they went to me and I would have to go through all the telemetry data and find out what had caused it. Okay, so I'm trying to give that as an overview of what I was doing when Apollo 13 exploded. So I was in that room, and it was uh, April 13th of 1970. Now, I'd been in that same room uh, when Neil Armstrong was landing on the moon, and the alarm system began to ring alarms. Uh, they called them program alarms, and, of course, because of that, you know, I was quite concerned in Apollo 11 because it looked like my alarm system was going to be responsible for Neil Armstrong not being first on the moon. And, that, you know, that was horrible thought, you know. And uh, But just weeks before the actual landing of Apollo 11, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin's landing, a simulation they had gone through just weeks before, they had came up with that program alarm and uh, they understood what it was. I wasn't involved in that simulation. It was it dealt with the uh, actual computers that would uh, monitor whether the landing radar and the rendezvous radar was feeding the information into the computer computers. And actually, because of the confusion and the overload of the both the rendezvous radar and the landing radar signals to the onboard computer of Apollo 11. It turned on that program alarm. However, it wasn't an alarm that had anything to do with the actual landing uh, program, the executive program that would land the, the Eagle. And so if you just ignored it, you'd be fine. But if you aborted because of it, that wouldn't be good. But they knew that it wasn't something you should abort for. A guy named Jack Garman and a friend of mine named Steve Bales 
that they, they knew that that wasn't going to be a problem if it came on. They said, ignore the alarm system, bring Eagle down. And so I didn't go down in infamy with Apollo 11. My alarm system did not keep Neil Armstrong off the moon. However, you know, to my credit, to my credit, I told you earlier that we had things called nuisance alarms. And these were things that just momentarily uh, would turn on the master alarm and they get that siren-like tone in their headsets. And uh, so uh, I had discovered uh, among the nuisance alarms for Apollo 11, there was one called the landing radar temperature. And I discovered that once Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were on the moon and the Eagle, that there was a sensor, a, a temperature sensor in the landing radar that could likely have turned on and either aborted uh, their moonwalk or once they were out uh, actually collecting rocks and, and planting the American flag, uh, I discovered that very likely that alarm would come on and they'd have to either abort the moonwalk, they wouldn't be able to plant the flag, and worst of all, they couldn't talk to President Nixon. And so I came up with an engineering design that removed that alarm as a threat. So you're talking to the guy that perhaps saved the moonwalk. <laughs> it's been one of my great moments in my career, my 54-year career that uh, I, I think in part I, I saved the moonwalk. But back to Apollo 13. So I had my headset on. It was uh, uh, eight minutes after nine o'clock, April 13th of 1970. And I was watching the console that same as the flight controllers would would see as an engineer responsible for the alarm system. And all at once, I watched that console and it flickered, it flickered off and on like the like a television set, like the, you would be watching TV and all of a sudden it lost, but then it recovered itself. I said, something's wrong. And then I heard in my headset, Houston, we've had a problem. And uh, what had happened was that an oxygen tank, tank two in the, in the service module that was responsible indirectly for providing power and oxygen to breathe, it had actually exploded it had turned on one of my alarms. See, I was responsible for setting the criteria for every single alarm. I would talk to the systems manager for power and for the uh, propulsion and the environmental control. And then I'd work with them and they would explain to me and we together would come up with the criteria that would ring an alarm that the astronauts could actually respond to. Well, this particular alarm, I had set the voltage that the buses, there were two power buses, and one failed, you still have the other one to use that would carry 28 volts around the vehicle to power everything. Well, when that explosion happened, it was sort of like a nuisance, really. The explosion actually took down the power in, it's called main bus B undervolt. And so that was one of the criteria, that was one of the uh, lights that the astronauts would see when my alarm system would ring an alarm because of that low voltage. And so indirectly, you're talking to the guy responsible for that famous distress call, Houston, we've had a problem. I was the guy because it 
alarm came on, the main bus B undervote turned on, and that, that's what caused the astronauts to say, Houston, we've had a problem. We've had a main bus B undervote. Now, that got my attention. And uh, flight controllers, and uh, they say they spent about 18 minutes trying to actually identify exactly what had happened. Uh, but I heard, when I heard that, that call and I, I, I knew that that had turned on and I saw the screen flicker. At first I thought, oh no, it's my system. I'm, I've caused the problem here. It, it, it really, I saw saw indications and the astronauts did. I've talked to Fred Hayes and others that, that were, well, Fred, and they said there were five or six different alarm lights for my system that were turned on. And, uh, and my thought was, it can't be that bad. It's got to be my system. But then Jim Lovell in my headset said, we see something venting. Oh, I said, look, if something's venting and uh, they they said, uh, Houston, we had a problem. And I saw that that television, that console screen flicker like that. And there's a real problem. And it's not my system. And uh, I felt we had to work to get those guys and rescue them. So the next four days. Uh, I and the whole—it's called the Mission Operations Team—that was led by Gene Krantz and three other flight controllers and their shift. And then together, the whole team was able to go over and come up with solutions to all those grave problems that likely should have killed those three guys. One of the problems, of course, the one that's reported so widely is the problem they had with trying to make the lunar lander designed for two men for two days last for four days with three guys to get them back to Earth. And there weren't enough filters to take the carbon dioxide out of the cabin atmosphere. And so my alarm system, of course, turned on what's called the CO2 partial pressure alarm. And so uh, you could monitor the actual pressure on a meter, but it's nice to have an, a light come on when it's too low. And so that light came on, and of course, others were watching actually the meter level. And uh, you know, it's interesting that people say, well, instrumentation, what good is that? Well, believe me, if you didn't have a sensor that would tell you what the partial pressure of carbon dioxide, but the astronauts wouldn't realize they'd get drowsy, uh, maybe lethargic because the carbon dioxide was getting, but if you didn't have some way of an instrument, a, a sensor that actually told you how much carbon dioxide, it'd be a problem. <laughs> and so that's why I always say, well, people say, well, oh, the instrumentation and displays, they're very important. You have to know what's going on. Okay. So Here's the thing that, that's been in the movie. I'm sure you've seen the movie probably several times. Well, in the movie, uh, of course, they show the problem, and it's they don't have enough of these square filters from the mothership that has 24 of them to work in the lunar lander that has a system that requires round carbon dioxide filters. Now, how do you make the square filters go into the round system for the lunar lander that's going to work like a life. How do you do that? Well, remember I just told you that there's a very important group now because of the Apollo 1 fire called the Mission Evaluation Room. Now, in our room, there's 70 engineers, 
And they're not only NASA engineers, but they're contractor engineers. So both those groups of guys are intimately knowledgeable about how every system's designed, how it's tested, and what its performance parameters are. So the thought comes out, how do we make these square filters work in the round system? Well, in our particular mission evaluation room, we have environmental control system engineers. Smiley, the guy's name was. And uh, he was called in, and uh, they told him about the problem. And uh, so as he goes over the space center, he's thinking, well, what can I do to make square filters work into a round system? Well, he gets over at the space center. By the way, the movie does a real good job. The movie Apollo 13, Hanks and Howard's movie and so forth, does a real good job of kind of showing what was going on. And that's the the mission evaluation room guys are doing that. That's not done by flight controllers or astronauts. That's our engineers that knew the... The, the the things that were going to be on board that they would be able to jury rig into a, a system that would make a square filter fit into a round hole in the lunar lander. And so you've seen it on, you can, it's pretty accurate if you watch the movie. They took bags they had on board for uh, suit parts and so forth, plastic bags and so forth. And so what they did, they took those square filters and they put them uh, at the mouth of a bag, and uh, and uh, then on board, here again, the engineer guys in the mission evaluation room know exactly how the environmental control system circulates the atmosphere through, through the um, Apollo 13 lunar lander. And so there's a hose that they have on board that they actually can circulate cabin atmosphere into an astronaut suit before he goes out on the lunar surface. He can put that hose and the actual environmental control system would blow the cabin atmosphere into his suit before he actually has to use his backpack to get out of the lunar lander into the vacuum of the moon's surface. And so that hose is able to circulate atmosphere around the lunar lander's cabin. So I think Ed Smile, he comes up with the, uh, well, here's what we can do. We we know there's a fan that is actually sucking and blowing air around like a vacuum is, is pulling cabin atmosphere through that am and then blowing it out and so that it can go into the suit or wherever. And so we'll take that hose and we know that can, that fan circulates things. So what we'll do is we'll take that hose connected to that circulating fan and we'll cut a, a notch or we'll do a way of putting that hose into the plastic bag that has that square filter at the mouth of it so that we can actually uh, somehow put atmosphere from the cabin into that bag. And then because the square filter is at the mouth of it, well, here's the problem. The thing's going to leak because uh, you know, you take if you try to put something a square pig uh, into a, a bag uh, and make it a seal, it, you, it won't work. Well, way back in Gemini days, uh, this is a good story. I have a friend that lives down the street. He's I think in his nineties now, but he lives down the street and he used to walk his dog uh, past my house, and he was responsible uh, for some engineering on Gemini, 
And the Gemini astronauts had a difficulty. Gemini was a very confining vehicle. There wasn't much room in it. And so when they would open uh, containers for eating things or using experiments, and, and once they ate something or had a container that held something, it would be like trash. So the guy's name is George Franklin, the, the friend I'm talking about down the street who was involved in the Gemini. So the astronauts said, well, what are we going to do? Well, somebody proposed actually creating some kind of a uh, trash masher, that, some kind of a design that would tra- uh, mash all those things in Gemini so that they could compact them and put them in a, a, a locker or something and get them out of the way. Well, George said, no, you don't need to do that. He says, that'd be very expensive to build some kind of a trash masher on the Gemini inside. So why don't you do this? You know, when you go to the grocery store and you unpack all the items that you want to eat or whatever, you know, all you have to do is take the, those items and just take your hands or your arms, and, and the astronauts could take those things and actually compress them themselves with their arms. And that, that way that they would need a trash masher, their arms would be like the trash masher. And then what you do is the, the fact that you can't let the things, they have to be kept as a, as a, a compacted a mass. So he said, here's what you do. Why don't you just put a, a duct tape, put duct tape on board Gemini. And that worked. All they had to do is the astronauts would trash, take the things with their arms and they smash and then they duct tape them up and then they could stow them away. Well, because of that idea that George actually proposed, and he wrote a memo about it, and I think it was Scott Carpenter, one of the original astronauts, uh, agreed with it, and they approved it. And so from that time in Gemini on through to Apollo 13, there was always duct tape on every manned spaceship. And for Apollo 13, that duct tape was still there, and I say it saved their lives because that's the thing, that duct tape they were able to use to actually seal up that plastic bag around that square filter. And that was done by the mission evaluation room. And uh, (laughs) that's quite a story. When Apollo 13 exploded and they were having to go from the actual command ship quickly into the lunar lander, the problem was, of course, that the oxygen tank provided power, electrical power, to keep the command ship alive. But when that explosion happened, that source of electrical power was ebbing and was lost. So what are you going to do? Well, in the command module, there are what we call emergency batteries, and they're only to be used when you approach reentry. And uh, they are not supposed to be used, uh, they can be used often uh, for temporary things that you need them for before you actually go to reentry, but they're charged sort of through the batteries. Uh, it, 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 the, the main power system in the, the uh, mothership, you know, they're charged. If you had to use them temporarily, they could still be recharged. But for Apollo 13, because the main power system that was connected then directly for, through that uh, exploded oxygen tanks, and then that was feeding fuel cells through the chemical reaction, you know, of hydrogen and oxygen produces electricity, water, and, and oxygen to breathe. Well, 
the electrical power part of that thing was not going to be available because that was the ultimate source of it was that oxygen tank. Now, without electrical power, uh, the guys are in the command ship. What's going to happen? Well, they, they have to have electrical power for many things, uh, one of which is to keep all the environmental control system. But another thing is they have what they call an onboard computer and a navigation system. And this is the way that they can actually find their way back to Earth. And so the concern was that in the computer for the command ship, they had knowledge of where they were in space. But the lunar lander that they're going to have to now use as a lifeboat, its computer doesn't have that knowledge. And so the concern was we'd better power up the lunar lander and, and keep the command ship alive, even though we don't have the electrical power system in it to do that. So what are we going to do? Well, the decision was made, uh, Glenn Lunny and, and uh, the flight control guy, we'll use these emergency batteries that are really just supposed to be used when we approach reentry. And, uh, you know, then, then, then that's when you need them. And if you don't have them, then you're in bad trouble because those batteries for reentry are essential, you know, to get through, to power up everything because you've, you've separated from the oxygen system in, in, in from the electrical power system in the service module. That capsule doesn't have that, all that power from the service module. It has to use those emergency batteries. But now we, what are you going to do? The, the main power system won't keep the ship alive, so you got to use these emergency batteries. And there's one of the flight controllers, his name is Merlin Merritt. He was very concerned about this, you know. And uh, I, I share, I have a, a program that actually goes through all the prayers that were answered. Merlin's a believer, and so he began to pray that we wouldn't, by the fact we were ignorant of what was really going on, do something that would actually take the lives of the astronauts rather than saving them. One of the things he was very troubled about was using these emergency batteries, and he he was almost went to the mat on this, telling the main flagger, don't use those things. But there's no choice, had to use them. So they get into the command, from the command module, they go into the lunar lander, they they make sure everything's powered up in the lunar lander, and then they look back and uh oh, we've used and depleted those emergency batteries, and if we can't get power back into them, and we don't have really the means of doing that through the exploded ship, what are we going to do? Well, here's another challenge for the mission evaluation room, the MER. Uh, in an office next to mine, in the building I worked in at the Manned Spacecraft Center, was the electrical power manager for the lunar lander. His name was Art Campus. Art was a Hispanic engineer, graduate, brilliant guy of, of the University of Texas. And uh, Art had looked into the design of the lunar lander, and then he'd also observed that, you know, there's a situation, he thought, that maybe there would be an occasion when you need the lunar lander's batteries to actually charge up the emergency batteries in the command. He just came up with this concept. And he thought, you know, I'm going to go through and just actually uh, think about what procedure I would use to actually trickle charge power from the large batteries in a lunar lander 
to the batteries in the command module. And he put together this procedure, and uh, he had written it all down. And when Apollo 13 exploded and they had to go to the emergency batteries and depleted him, guess who they called in? And Art was at home, and they called him in. to Art, we got a problem here. So Art goes over to the space center, and as he's going over there, he remembers this procedure that he had come up with. These things are unique. Art had gone to a movie. I guess he had seen this movie that evening, and it was a movie called Maroon. And in the movie Maroon, there was a situation where the Maroon actually had the same things that happened in this movie. I think Gregory Peck and James Francisco and several other famous uh, actors were in it. They faced the same kind of things that we faced on Apollo 13. And Art had already seen this movie. And in the movie, uh, there was a, uh, actually a scene where it said, charge the battery. So Art thought, you know, uh, that's kind of, he began to think about, well, how would you charge batteries? And because the Maroon started thinking about that, and then he got this call from the Space Center. He goes over there, and he gets at the Space Center, and he directly writes down that procedure of how to do that. And that procedure is one of the things that saved the lives of the Apollo crew, because then they could charge up those batteries with the large batteries and the lunar lander. Well, it certainly sounds like you guys had your work cut out for you. What was it like being right there on the ground in Houston at that time? Well, in the control room, you you have teams. You have, uh, I guess there would be four teams, eight-hour shifts, and they overlap. One shift overlaps the next shift. So especially in those first hours, that was the, the time that was very crucial because you had to make decisions immediately. Like Gene Krantz was beautiful. His comments would be, now let's do something. Let's not be guessing about anything. And so you had the control room, and then you had a backup group of flight controllers. And of course, I've given you a lot about the mission evaluation room, but the guys in the control room, you know, you can listen to the entire uh, voice audios of everything that was ever said in, in, the, con- in the control room and so interchange. And you can see, you can hear people sometimes kind of talking over one another because so many people in trying to understand the thing is, 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 a, is a big job. And because lives are, you know, in the balance there, uh, you you can understand that there was a lot of concern. Uh, first, to understand what was really going on. Uh, you know, Cy Liebergott's a wonderful guy, and the movie really does a, a good job of showing what he faced, trying to understand all the things. Then John Aaron's another guy uh, that had to come up with ways of, of uh preserving the power that were it was in the lunar landers batteries and all those kind of things so you so there were such difficult situations then you had these simulators uh charlie duke uh 10th man on the moon worked the simulators uh you know the, remember the story is that uh, king mattingly was uh, replaced uh, because of uh, 
Charlie's measles and and uh, Ken got replaced uh, by Jack Swigert and all that. Well, Charlie was mainly he was working more on the simulators than Ken was. But the way that Hollywood uh, portrayed uh, the whole uh, people involved was that's the way Hollywood does think it was good to give Ken, Ken that role doing most of that stuff because of the uh, fact that he here he had been replaced, but he made a contribution. But a lot of that was done by Charlie Duke. So he's working, trying to come up with the uh, uh this this thing I just told you about is trying this whole procedure. John Aaron, the flight controllers, was revolved with it to charge those batteries with power from the uh, lunar lander and it can conserve. So you had the simulators working, the guys in the simulators, and then you had the flight controllers on station. And then there would be times when one flight control would have to take over for another flight control. You can imagine. The, what is it like? Well, uh, it's uh, it's remarkable. But then you had the guiding, overseeing uh, uh, personnel, a person like Gene Krantz that could actually bring it all together in a way that could make sure that the guys could get back alive. So uh, Gene did a wonderful job being the leader of the whole thing. And the movie does capture that very well. So I'm trying to tell you, it, it was a little confusing, but then again, there was enough background. See, all these things were done in simulations, so it wasn't the first time. And the simulations always dealt with things like Apollo 13. There were all kinds of things that should they have happened in another way or an engine failure or something like that. There was always a backup procedure and a plan. So that kept things organized because they had most of the things that happened previously had already been practiced. It's like you're practicing for a game of basketball and your scrimmages and so forth. And if this or that happens, you know, you've done it before, even though it wasn't in real time in a real game. So that's some of the things I can share with you, why it was able to be performed and carried off and save those guys' lives. How did it feel when you, you finally realized that Apollo 13 had, had splashed down, that they were home, they were safe? Of course, you're, it's wonderful. You know, when you compare that to losing three guys on the launch pad in a fire, what sorrow there was, and then to know that here the whole team was able to save three guys' lives. And when you see that thing and that you know every time i go through this thing and, and see those three shoots deploying and those guys coming down it brings tears to my eyes every time i see it just wonderful to know that it was a team that was able to do that and we were so proud that that had happened but then we were so proud that we were able to actually to take all those things that we had done over the years, whether it was through simulations or uh, engineering meetings or flight control meetings where all of us work together and practices that happen, to know that that all worked together. And, you know, we take huge pride, even to this day, 50 years later, about putting a man on the moon. But I submit to you that the world and pretty much everybody equals the rescue of Apollo 13 equal to putting a man on the moon. It was a wonderful thing. And uh, in some 
places, they think the movie, you know, there's never been a real exciting movie, I don't think, made about Apollo 11. But that movie about Apollo 13 has is still being watched over and over again. Because when men's lives are threatened and you see a team work together to save them, it's a story that really will never be forgotten. And it's as important as actually the first man walking on the moon. Before the Apollo 13 mission, um, people were beginning to lose attention with the Apollo program. What did the rescue do to change people's perceptions of lunar exploration? Uh, There's quite a bit written about that. Uh, From my perspective, I I got into a program. uh, I worked in a group called the New Initiatives Office. And what our assignment was is to come up with the next big step. And we looked at the different things that would excite America and the world. What should be the next step in space? And it's, it's difficult. It's like winning the World Series. Uh, your team wins the World Series. Well, how do you do better than that? So it's like uh, going to the moon and rescue Apollo 13. How do you come up with a way of selling the the next thing in space that would equal what happened in 11 or 13. Well, what we began to think is we have to show uh, not only America, but the world, the importance of the technology and the science that are all collected when you do go into space and you do uh, develop systems that will take you to Mars. And that was the challenge, and we still have that challenge right now as we talk about going back to the moon with Artemis and so forth. And so it's difficult to do. And if you're one of the people like I was and am and have been for 50 years, this is something I'm always challenged to try to do uh, the way I do it. I try to go to talk to schools and share with people about all the benefits of space exploration, all the products that have been forthcoming, like heart make pacemakers and, and communication satellites and all these things and technological things that are a byproduct. But somehow it's difficult. It's difficult to keep the attention of everybody in the kind of thing that we experienced way back in 1969 and 70 and so forth. And then there was the concept, remember, that was the era of the Cold War when we were dealing with the competition between the Soviet Union and then uh, the United States and the Allies were working and so forth. Uh, yeah, that's it, it. It's been difficult, and uh, I'd like to say that you know, five or ten years after Apollo one, that uh, Apollo eleven, thirteen, that we were on the Mars, you know, but it didn't happen that way. And yeah, it's somewhat disappointing it didn't, but uh, we've done our best to try to keep the dream alive, and uh, I'm still working to do that right now. <laughs> well. Hopefully, in the next couple of years, we'll get to see the Artemis mission um, from NASA, which will send a new moonwalker to the surface. Uh, do you plan on sticking around at the agency to help bring them home safely? thought is, if we could, you know, that's why I like this new goal of getting back to the moon in, in by, you know, four or five years, because I'll still be here. There are many of 
the uh, original uh, workers at NASA. Right now, uh, I am number seven in longevity here at the Johnson Space Center. Uh, I have 54 years in, but there are six people that have more time in than I have. And uh, one of our employees here at the uh, robotics division that I'm in just retired, and he had 60 years in, and he was 83 years old. So if I got six more years, yeah, that'll be great. You know, and if you stay around longer, you know, you're one of the only ones that can tell stories like I'm sharing with you guys, because I was there when it happened. So that's one of the incentives to stay around too. Uh, There's a group called Scripps Howard. And so they were going to come to Johnson Space Center and they wanted somebody that could compare the Artemis program with the Apollo program. And they said, is there anybody still there that actually worked directly on on Apollo and they said well we have one guy thank you very much Jerry uh thank you for taking the time to talk to us today we really appreciate it thank you Elizabeth I appreciate it it's an honor for me to share with you godspeed that was Jerry Woodfill talking about his experience of the Apollo 13 rescue to find out more about that fateful mission pick up the April issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine go to www.skyatnightmagazine.com for more information Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast or Spotify. Spotify.